Good morning again. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. When you find that, stand with me as I read God's Word. Last week we saw in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23, that the test of discipleship is saying yes to Jesus. Today, in Matthew 16, 24 to 28, we're going to see that the ongoing cost of discipleship is saying no to yourself. We're going to read Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Lord God, we, we are humbled before Your presence. Always in Your presence, Lord, but even now as we come into this place and we gather together, we are even more aware that You are here. And Lord, we are humbled and we, we seek after You, Lord. We, our hearts are are open to, for you to, to, to teach us, to, to change us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave this place unchanged. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a time where many, if not most, are content to settle for far less than God's glorious ideal we live in a time where god calls us higher than than ourselves but we live in a time where people are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god philippians 2 tells us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind consider others more important than ourselves and we are to have that attitude in ourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4 tells us that many will follow their own desires and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. But we are called to be sober in all things. We are called to endure hardship, to do the work of an evangelist, and to fulfill our ministry. But we live in a time when personal autonomy and personal choice is valued higher than life. Quite literally. And so up against that backdrop, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're going to look today at what it says, just plainly, what does the Bible say in these verses? And then what does it mean and and, and what does it not mean? And then what difference does it make? Let's get a little background. We'll get a little context. 
here in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, you had Pharisees and Sadducees demanding signs from Jesus. Tell us, show us that you are really God. Jesus' identity was very clear. His deity was very clear. And amidst misunderstanding, amidst the Jews renouncing him, Peter stands up and makes a bold confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus pronounced him blessed, not because he came up with those words himself, but because God the Father revealed those truths to him. But then Peter turns around, and as Jesus begins to talk about his passion, as Jesus begins to talk about the cross, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Tells him, no, this, should never happen, this shall never happen to you, as if he could keep Jesus from going to the cross. As if he could keep Jesus from suffering that pain and that death, which Peter could not fathom, the depth that Jesus would go in bearing the sins of the world. Coupled with this rebuke of, of Peter comes a rebuke of Satan from Jesus. Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew where the temptation was coming from. Jesus knew who was using Peter. And he chastises Peter. And then what he does, and I think it's a perfect example of, once again, Jesus turning to his disciples and teaching them. Here's Peter who's off the mark, but so are the rest of the disciples. We don't see anyone stepping up and saying, Peter, you're wrong. Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, makes the bold confession of faith, makes the profession of Christ's deity and, and identity, and then he turns and rebukes him. And I'm sure most all the disciples thought the same. Peter was just bold enough to say what probably everyone else was thinking. No, Jesus, don't do it. We don't want that to happen to you. We want to keep our friends from suffering, don't we? Coupled with this rebuke of Satan and the chastising of Peter, though, is Jesus coming along and saying, now here's an opportunity. I want you all to listen up real, real clear. He turns to his disciples and he tells them, you want to follow me? It's like he's saying to us, you call yourself a Christian? You've got to say no to yourself. You've got to say no to yourself. Easier said than done. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone, including all people, this is for all would-be disciples, not just super-Christians, not just those who want to go deeper, this is normal Christianity. This is the picture of normal Christianity. Not the first time Jesus mentioned the cross for his disciples. He did it back in chapter 10. If this isn't our experience, if this isn't my experience, if this isn't your experience, we're the ones who are abnormal. This is not for super Christians. This is for regular Christians. All Christians. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must... The ESV says, let him. The NIV gets it right and says, he must. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus defines a true follower in three engaging actions. All three verbs used in the third person imperative in the Greek, which, which for the, there's no exact English translation for it. The closest we can come to an exact representation of what is being said is those words, let him. But that's weak. It sounds weak. It's not forceful enough. And so what, what 
he is saying is he, he must, you must. So the words he must carries the force of the commands. And Jesus says first, if you're a true follower, if you're a would-be follower, if you're saying you follow me, then you've got to deny yourself. The New Testament writers commonly used uh, this verb and, and it, it means uh, say not, deny. Um, there's an emphatic verb. This is an emphatic and it means to deny utterly. It's only used in the Gospels. It's only used in this setting and when Jesus was anticipating, uh, predicting Peter's denial and when Peter actually denied him. This word that's used here means to utterly deny. It's, it's exclusively used in the Gospels. It's reserved for, for a situation where you, where you utterly deny something. It's the most conclusive denial there is. It's to deny oneself to the depth of denials, to live without a single uh, ounce of self-centered thought. Every one of us are outside that realm. We all live with self-centered thoughts. But to deny yourself means to live without devotion to yourself and being exclusively devoted to Jesus and his work. That's what it means to deny yourself in this context. Second, Jesus says that a devoted follower is not just to deny themselves, but to take up his cross. Take up a cross. That, that, uh, there's a, a new significance in this context to this. In, in back in chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus talked about taking up a cross and he was clarifying the commitment that a follower would need to have and, and he was in ministry training with them. But here he's using it for much the same purpose, but it takes on a, a much deeper meaning because Christ's own cross was drawing nearer. Now Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Any Jew living back then would know the significance of what he said. Every Jew living back then would know that a man condemned to die would be forced to carry part of his cross. He would carry the cross beam over his shoulders. It was a burden to carry, but it was a sign of his impending death. He was going to die. Someone was going to kill him on that cross. Crucifixion in the first century was one of the most feared ways of, of execution. It was an effective Roman deterrent to insurrection and to rebellion. Hey, you rebel, you're going to get killed on a cross. Horrible way to die. Condemned, forced to carry their crossbeam to the place of their crucifixion, and there they were nailed to that crossbeam, which in turn was nailed to an upright beam, which in turn was then hoisted into place. Now, Jesus tells his followers here, You've got to take up a cross. You've got to take up your cross. It's interesting to note that he had not yet told them that he was going to die on a cross, that he was going to die. Must have been a shocking portrayal. Jesus uses the cross and the crucifixion as a picture of discipleship. The victorious Messiah that they had expected had told them that he was going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And now he tells them, you're going to suffer too. You're going to take a cross. Again, it's not the first mention of a cross. Chapter 10 and verse 38, he says, you take up your cross. You're going to follow me, you take up your cross. That was his first mention of the cross to his disciples. But to them, it would evoke a picture of violent, degrading death. 
Third thing Jesus says a true disciple must do then, not just deny himself, not just take up his cross, but then follow Christ. So Jesus, thinking back in Matthew, had commanded his disciples to follow him in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. But the suffering that went with such following was not clarified until Jesus' statement in chapter 10, verse 38, where follow me comes after take up the cross. And so this is a, a, almost a restatement of chapter 10, verse 38, but it has greater weight because the cross was nearer. It had greater weight because the command was more serious. The offense that it follows was more serious, rebuking Jesus. And here's what the first disciples were to do. They were to follow Jesus to Jerusalem and then onto their own crosses, as Jesus says. For some a literal one, for others spiritual, but for all spiritual. Jesus goes on, verse 25. Whoever, again, whoever would, whoever wishes, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. You want to get out of that? If you want to follow me and you want to get out of that, then you're not mine. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Counterintuitive to the way we think. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes on, verse 26, and the logic is relentless here. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life, literally forfeits his soul? Or, he says, as if he could, as if a person could, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now think with me a moment for what Jesus is saying here. No one could actually gain the whole world. You try to go gain the whole world, someone's going to have a part of it that you want. Your arms, your hands aren't big enough. The warehouses in the world aren't big enough to carry all the things that are in the whole world. You can't gain the whole world. No one could gain the whole world, even those whose only focus is on accumulating things in this life. But what, if those who only focus on accumulating things in this life gather relatively little in comparison to what is in the world. Even the richest. But even if it were possible, what Jesus is saying is, it wouldn't be a good deal. I always want to get a good deal. This is not a good deal. This is not a good bargain. He says, you'll lose your soul if you try to make that bargain. And here's why. You want more incentive for following Jesus? Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come. Now, he had just said that he was going to die. And he's going to be raised. And now he's saying he's going to come back. He's going to come. How is he going to come? He's going to come in his Father's glory. He's going to come with his angels. Those myriads of angels that, that Brian was talking about in, in Revelation 5 a couple of weeks ago, the, the myriads upon myriads of angels, Jesus is coming in the Father's glory with his angels. They're his. He's so far higher than them. He owns them. He uses them. They're at his disposal. They're ministering agents, as Hebrews says, sent out to render service for those who will inherit salvation. Jesus is going to come with his angels. And what is he going to do when he comes? He is going to then repay. Some versions say reward. 
every man according to what he has done. A better translation is repay. But reward works as long as you remember that in the judgment, a reward is not good for those who are condemned. Believers will be rewarded. Unbelievers will be rewarded. Vastly different rewards. There are repayments for what they have done. There's incentive to follow Christ. To quote from Psalm 62 and verse 12. He would repay each man according to what he has done. Another uh, claiming of deity on on Christ's part. Here's God in Psalm 62 saying, I'm going to repay everyone according to what they have done. And then Jesus says, I'm going to come with my angels and I'm going to repay everyone for what they have done. I'm God, he says. I'm the sovereign Savior. He says in verse 28, I tell you, truly, truly, I tell you, there are some of these standing here who will not taste death. That means die. Taste death is a, is a, is a colloquial for die it, it, until they see the Son of Man coming. There's a second time. He's coming back. He's coming in his kingdom. Very similar, by the way, to chapter 10, again, but verse 23, but a different context here. Um, go back with me to chapter tw- uh, 10, in verse 23. We've got to see this to even understand these, these words as well. Uh, when they persecute you in one town, he's, he's, giving, um, he's giving instructions to his 12 disciples as he's sending them out. He's telling them that persecution will come, trouble will come. And he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now in that context, in chapter 10, I think the best interpretation of that coming is Christ coming in judgment on unbelieving Jews, culminating in the fall of Jerusalem, instruction of the temple in AD 70. But there are very, if you flip back to Matthew 16, it's different. It gets different. Some people think it's the same exact reference. Various explanations on verse 28. Some people think it refers to the transfiguration that's going to happen. We're going to look at next week. After six days, six days later, Jesus took Peter and James up and John up on a mountain and um, was, was transfigured before them. Literally, he morphed in front of them. Metamorphosized in front of them. That's the Greek word, actually. Some people think it refers to the transfiguration. Others think it refers to the resurrection or to Pentecost, the fall of Jerusalem. Some say it's the rapture of the church. Others say it's the second coming where he will bring reward and judgment, reward for believers, judgment for unbelievers. I'm taking it in a bit of a general sense here of Christ's kingly reign. When Christ's coming again in his kingdom after the resurrection in many ways, the rapid multiplication of disciples, the mission to the Gentiles, What he is saying, I believe, is that some of them standing there would live to see the gospel preached throughout the Roman Empire. They would see a rich harvest of souls for Christ. Some standing there would see judgment. You know, Jesus, going back to verse 27, 
and making it very personal. He's going to repay everyone according to what they've done. That's what he says. There's an exchange, he says. Can you make an exchange for your soul? You can't do it, can you, in verse 26. You can't make an exchange for your soul. At the judgment, there will be those who will face the disastrous hell and they will be in remorse and suffering uh, and they can't buy themselves back. You can't make an exchange for your soul. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, Truly no no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their soul is costly and can never suffice. What does it mean? What is Jesus saying in all these verses? Especially the, the, the focus of these verses, which is really the first verse. The latter three verses really amplify what he says in the first verse, in verse 24. What is he saying? What does it mean to deny yourself? What does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We all come here today with ideas of what those things mean. These are not for most of us, these are not brand new words. We live in a, in, a, in a world of words and ideas and thoughts, and these are words and ideas and thoughts that Christians are well aware of. But if you're anything like me, you often misidentify what these things really are. If you're anything like me, you often misdescribe them and make them easier rather than harder. What does it mean to deny yourself? And at the same time, what, is, what does it not mean? Let's look at that first. What does it not mean? What does it not mean? It doesn't mean you deny, uh, diminish your personality. Denying yourself doesn't mean to pretend like you're not what, how God made you in terms of your personality. When I was a new believer, uh, a year after becoming a new believer, I, I went on my first full-time um, ministry uh, outing for a summer and was with four other uh, co-workers in Christ, and we were serving at a church up in Big Bear, California. We had been sent up from Downey to Big Bear, and, and I remember I had to meet with the pastor of that church every week, and I dreaded my meetings with him. And the reason I did is because every time we met, here's what he would say. Hey, Mike, why are you so hard on yourself? Hey, Mike, Why are you squelching your personality? Mike, why are you trying to fit yourself into a legalistic mode that you think a Christian should look like? You need to relax. You need to to be free in Christ. You need to just let the Lord use you as he's made you. And then you'll see freedom. And I remember thinking inside, he's liberal. I remember thinking inside, he sold out long ago. I remember thinking to myself, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He knew everything about what he was talking about. At that point in my life as a new believer, I thought I had to be nothing like I was before, including just how I was in general as a person. Denying yourself doesn't mean diminishing your personality. God gave you that for for a reason, and, and there are good things and bad things about your personality and mine. But don't diminish that. That's not what it means. What else it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean to downplay your giftedness. Deny yourself. Well, I'm just going to pretend like I don't have any gifts and I'm just going to sit down. And I, I, you know, I got to deny myself. I got a gift to sing, but I'm not going to sing because then it would be putting me in front. 
I got a gift to teach, but I'm not going to teach because I would maybe be uh, tempted to, to take the glory. It's really easy to say, well, I'm going to deny myself and then deny your giftedness and then get out of serving in some way. Here's what, here's what it means to deny yourself. To deny yourself means you renounce yourself. You know, it's interesting. The Jews were renouncing Christ. His disciples are supposed to renounce themselves. Renounce yourself. Self-renouncing faith is, is deny yourself. For those who come to Christ with self-renouncing faith, there, there will be a true and eternal life because they'll be seen as true. They'll be seen as uh, real believers. As we're going to see as we go on, renouncing yourself is the hardest thing in, in the world that you will ever do. Denying yourself is the hardest thing in the world that you will ever do. And if you do it today, that doesn't mean you'll be able to do it tomorrow or even in one hour from now. Denying yourself means to live in a completely unselfish way, which all of us know we don't live. Go back to Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I run right past that, but it says nothing. Do nothing from selfishness. That is the goal. That is, the, the, that is what we're aiming for. That is what we ought to want. It means to deny yourself absolutely. Put in really simple terms, it means stop demanding your way. Stop demanding your way. There's a bunch of little saviors running around, and they're false saviors. There are a lot of Christians running around trying to be their own savior and everybody else's. There's a lot of Christians running around trying to be their own Lord and everyone else's. Deny yourself means stop demanding your way. Some people say that Christianity is a religious straitjacket. Emma Goldman called Christianity the breaker of man's will to dare and to do. An iron net, a straitjacket which does not let him expand or grow. What do we say to that kind of renouncing of Christ? What do we say? Here's what we say in response. Yes, yes, following Jesus, uh, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Christ is restrictive. And it's the best restriction in the world. It's the best restriction in the world in the best possible way. To follow Jesus means to stop demanding our way, to quit insisting that we know what's right. There is a way that seems right unto man and the way is the way of death. To quit insisting that what I want is most important. And Jesus goes on to say that a person must not only deny himself, but also take up his cross. And when we hear this phrase, we most often think of dealing with a particular struggle or a, a particular different, difficult person. Let's say you're dealing with a difficult relative or a co-worker. For instance, and we, we talk about that relative or that coworker as our cross to bear. But let me tell you what taking up your cross means and what it doesn't mean. And let me just say right away that what you think is your cross probably isn't. Now, what you most want to avoid may be the thing God most wants to use in your life to make you like Christ. Here's what taking up your cross isn't it's not bearing up under hardships. Life is full of hardships. Life is full of pain. But if we say that taking up the cross is bearing up with hardships, we are stopping far short of God's glorious ideal and his intent. It is not bearing up under hardships, and it is not dealing with difficult people. 
If you're married, let me just tell you right now, your spouse is not your cross, so stop telling people they are. Well, my husband's just my cross to bear. Well, my wife, she's just my cross to bear. Well, my kids, they're my, your, 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 your wife is not your cross to bear. Your husband's not your cross to bear. Your kids are not your cross to bear. Your job is not your cross to bear. Your health is not your jo- cross to bear. Your lack of whatever you have is not your cross to bear. The too much of whatever you don't like is not your cross to bear. Taking up your cross means to die to yourself. Taking up your cross means to continually die to yourself. Someone put it this way. Jesus demands a life of cross-bearing, of constant dying, because he offers something better than the best the world can give. There is a future when the Son of Man will appear in his glory and repay each person. And that prospect is what makes cross-bearing worthwhile. Taking up your cross is dying to your will and taking up his. It's saying no to yourself. So each person desiring to follow Christ needs to die to their own will and to their own understanding and to embrace God's will and God's truth and God's understanding. It's as simple and as excruciating as that. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it not mean? Well, what it, not, what it doesn't mean is it, it not just when you feel like it. Not just when you feel like following Jesus. You wake up in the morning one day and you, you feel like following Jesus. One out of 365. That's not what it means. You notice verse 24 again. If anyone would come after me, let him. Literally, he must. Not optional. It's not optional. And it means all the time. Discipleship is essential. It is normal Christianity. It is not uh, deeper Christianity. It is not committed Christianity. Uh, there's no such thing as uncommitted Christianity. No, there's no such thing as an uncommitted Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. It's full surrender. It's repentance. He was demanding total commitment from them, even to physical death. And making this call to full surrender a part of the message they were to proclaim to others. This was the gospel they were to preach. This was the message they were to give. This was not the soft, easy gospel that we know in America. This was the biblical gospel of the grace of God in Christ that calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. The best call of all. It's life or death devotion. And by the way, the same call to life and death devotion is repeated Uh, numerous times in the gospels in different places and in different ways and that life or death devotion makes a huge difference you're devoted to jesus as if your life depends upon it because it does your life depends on him i love the way tim keller put it once you see the son of god loving you like that he loves you so much he tells you the truth you're to deny yourself take up your cross and follow me he loves you like that he went to the cross his cross when you when you see the son of god loving you like that suffering and dying on the cross you begin to get a strength and assurance 
a sense of your own value and distinctiveness that is not based on what you are doing or whether somebody loves you, whether you've lost weight or how much money you've got. You are free. The old approach to identity is gone. You've got a new identity in Christ. The game has changed. I don't know if you, in your own words, can describe how your identity becomes rooted in Christ instead of performance or people-pleasing, but all I can say is, my life is wrapped up in Jesus. My life is wrapped up in Jesus. And there are implications, huge implications. First and foremost, I'm going to hit close to home. I, I, the married people are getting picked on today. I, I just per, perfor, uh, uh, officiated a wedding yesterday of a good friend of mine, uh, his son, and uh, who I've known since he was a very small child. And uh, and so I, I'm thinking marriage, and I'm thinking what a what a picture of Christ in the church, and and how beautiful that is. But husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I don't lay my down my life down for Angela like I ought to men you don't lay your life down for your wife you lay your life down for you why you say you do lay down your life for your wife you gotta love your wife like Christ loved the church substituted himself for her would you lay down in front of a moving train for your wife men and get her out of the way save her life for yours Your spouse is God's best tool to make you like Christ. Humanly speaking, best human tool to make you like Christ. Wives are to respect their husbands and trust their leadership. A lot of wives are disrespecting their husbands day in and day out. And they say, why don't you lead? It goes back and forth. You're to mutually submit to Christ and embrace your God-given role and responsibility. And I'll tell you what, you want to die to yourself? Just try to do that today don't worry about tomorrow just try that today and you will see how your flesh rears up and demands its way i know that's what happens to me every single day if you're married a good marriage is not the goal it's a byproduct it's a benefit of glorifying god of denying yourself taking up your cross and following jesus to glorify god there are huge implications also to this picture for the church the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ. And, and everyone knows that in the gathered church, there are weeds and there are tares. There are false and true, and only God knows. But in the church, there are huge implications for how we deal with new believers. When someone comes to faith in Christ, I was uh, sitting there the other day, and I see this all the time, but I was sitting there the other day, and a young couple walks by, and they have a baby in a baby carrier, you know, the, the basket, you know? Get a good workout with that, right? But you know what they didn't do? They didn't go take that baby and sit it in the parking lot out in the middle of the street or in the middle of the road. They were clinging to that. You know why? They were protecting that baby. That baby goes everywhere with them. They feed that baby. They clothe that baby. They protect them. You can't protect that baby as it grows up from every pain that will, that will happen. But they do what is appropriate. And with new believers, you've got to do what's appropriate. You've got to shelter them from certain things until they're strong enough. 
Not from suffering, but you've got to shelter them from slothfulness. How many Christians do I know that they become a brand new Christian and they don't get into the word, they don't get rooted in the faith, grounded in the faith, and then they go wayward and you wonder why. So you've got to protect new believers and get them into the word and get them into accountable relationships. And with old believers, that's anyone who's not a new believer, uh, you've got to love them. I was reading a great article the other day from uh, Tim Challies about how the body of Christ ought to how to love one another from Ephesians chapter 4 and how Satan's uh, greatest joy is when he splits relationships up in the church where people in the church are hating other people in the church and and where Jesus said uh, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another well you deny yourself when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ no matter how you feel makes a huge implication also on our relationship with anyone and everyone. Because if you deny yourself, you're going to show compassion for those who, who cannot pay you back. You're gonna, you love Jesus, you're going to be engaged, you're going to be on missional endeavors every single day. You're not going to be self-focused. It won't be all about what you want next. Well, God wants next. And so the agenda will be kind of open-ended as you anticipate and then you find out what God wants next. And it's going to make a difference in your spiritual growth. Bottom line, it will make a difference in your soul. The choices that you make to entertain yourself, uh, the redeeming value or lack thereof, your engagement in the Word of God and prayer and, and accountable relationships and outreach, will, it will show forth as you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. You will be... You will be exposed to the word of God that converts the soul, that makes wise the simple, that's sweeter than honey. I think the hardest thing to do in life is to say no to yourself. And every one of us knows that the moment that we say yes to Jesus and no to ourself, it's like everything falls into place in life. And our our problems don't go away. Everything just falls into place in life. The thought of, of, re, be, be, of being repaid for what we've done, ouch, right? We're toast if it's not for Christ's blood covering us. The greatest exchange. Jesus said, what can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. But the exchange has already been made. Christ for us. Christ for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to follow. Lord Jesus, we want to follow. But Lord, our, our flesh is just tearing at us and pulling us in all sorts of directions. Lord, etch the truth of Colossians 3.23 onto our souls that whatever we do, that we ought to do it in the name of, in your name, in the name of the Lord Jesus, knowing it's you whom we serve. Lord, help us, give us grace to say no to ourselves and yes to you. That the gospel of your grace would reign in us and through us. Amen.